podcast name plate nobody um what am i plugging on this fine tuesday i'm gonna plug instagram if you like the instagram photos of your food perhaps maybe you follow an influencer i don't even really know what that is but it's what i read about um the banner society is on instagram go check it out it's simply at banner society on instagram uh we're gonna be doing some fun stuff with the with the instagrams this fall a lot of kooky photos and um, neat stuff going on there. Uh, follow Banner Society on Instagram, at Banner Society. Oh, I'm on Instagram, too. It's at 38Godfrey. That's simple. That's easy. It's the same as my Twitter, at 38Godfrey. My name is Stephen Godfrey. This is Podcast Ain't Play Nobody. What are we doing today? Today, we are talking to Bud and Richard. We're doing a little preseason scrum uh, before we switch formats. I'll talk about that in a second uh, for about a week. <clears throat> today, we're going to do the... Uh, yeah, same old thing. Uh, Bud's going to come on here and talk about the blue chip ratio. If you thought when Bill Connolly exited um, this program that you'd never hear about stats again, you're wrong. Bud Elliott has a ratio system of blue chips per four-year uh, span at each school. And basically, it's like a determining factor for whether or not a team will be eligible for the national championship. I'll let Bud explain that a little bit more, but we're going to kind of break down the blue chip ratio. If you've been following all of us on the social media, as you are, I, I believe, sworn by law to do, uh, you'll see Bud has been talking a lot about the the really strange growth pattern of certain schools in a good way, like Penn State, right? Uh, and then also like what the hell UCLA is doing. It's very strange. Could be worse before it gets better there. Um, Bud's going to talk about blue chip ratio. Richard and I are going to jump around. We're going to talk about that uh, very bizarre Shy Wirtz situation at Georgia Southern. We're going to talk um, about the equally bizarre Josh Gaddis, Mike Loxley, like media beef thing that's going on about who called the plays at Alabama. Uh, very, very dumb. Very, very strange, too, that it showed up. Always think on those situations like, should I be happy that it's happening? It gives us something to do and talk about in the media. But I would say objectively, especially from a strategy standpoint, if you're one of those schools, like it's real dumb that they're arguing about that. Um, who called the plays at Alabama? Looks bad for both of them. Uh, Tuesday's show, that's today, normal. Thursday's show, we're going to start our interview series and we're going to run two episodes of those. So stay tuned. It's going to be super awesome, uh, I hope. Uh, we're going to kind of experiment again with the format here at Banner Society. We're not always going to do the same kind of PAPN. Um, I will talk a little bit more about our weekly format as we get to the football part of football season, like the weeks that have football on Saturdays. We're not quite there yet. Um, we are going to start incorporating interviews into the podcast. So you'll have two coming up over the next two episodes. And then uh, Bud and Richard will rejoin us as we march closer to the, the week zero is very much like a dry run perfect because you get two fbs games so it's like we can you know scrimmage scrimmage a little bit although that you know miami florida game is going to be good um okay we're going to talk to bud then we're going to talk to richard i uh, will see you guys thursday if you read the read option newsletter and by god you should be if you go to a football website.com you can sign up uh you would have received last week a little email from one bud elliott called the blue chip the blue chip ratio I already duffed the title um you want stats on this show? You think just because we put Bill out in the woods to survive on his own that we won't have stats? Bud Elliott's got a stat for you. Um, Bud, if you've never heard of the blue chip ratio before, go ahead and explain that. And then also you can you can take us into why we talked about Penn State for a day and a half on Twitter. 
Sure. So if you're just totally new to this, the blue chip ratio is the minimum recruiting talent threshold that a team needs to hit in order to win a national title, uh, at, at, at least in the BCS era, or as, as we like to define it, basically since recruiting rankings became a little more standardized. It is a measure uh, of what percentage of the recruits you signed are blue chips, defined as four and five-star players. Uh, generally, the list is between about, I don't know, 11 to 15, 16 teams. This year, it, it's a, a pretty good list. And uh, it, it, it's something I, I came up with after looking back at, at the classes that the elite programs and the national t- and championship teams have signed. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's basically the, the level. And it, it, it was kind of born out of my skepticism of teams, you know, like, like a Wisconsin or, or, or these teams that, you know, oh, they won a bunch of games. Yeah, they're a real national title contender. And I'm like, stop it. No, they're not. Like, if, if, come on, man. Look, look at their roster. Look, look at this roster. That, it's, it's not the same. Uh, but so from the I outside, mean, but a lot of this came, as I've watched you kind of develop this over the years, is that argument where it happens a lot. And it happens from coaches and, and programs of a particular persuasion where they say, you know, stars don't matter. We hear that all the time, right? TCU, stars, Michigan State. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Wisconsin, Washington before they actually started recruiting. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of schools like that. And I'm like, okay, how, how many rings does Gary Patterson have? How many rings does Mark D'Antonio have? How many rings does Kirk Ferentz have? Like undeniably really good coaching coaches. Mm-hmm. But recruiting is the most important part, in my opinion, of, of being a college coach if you're trying to win a national title because okay. it really does come down having the crazy elite players. Okay, tell me a little bit how you pull all this together because I do want to ask you about transfers and what you're going to do in the future as we enter the portal world. Sure. Um, so I go and, and my first step is to to grab the data, right, of, of all the signing classes. And then I actually go uh, team website by team website to make sure that the publishers who kind of curate the lists for, you know, 247 arrivals, uh, to make sure they're not putting uh, transfers in the signing class or walk-ons in the signing class because that obviously skews a lot with the denominator uh the you know the, the total number of signees and that, that's what i look at is is just signees i do not consider transfers a lot of people have asked me about this mm-hmm. um and, and the reason is this transfers on average are damaged goods if i was to consider a four-star transfer the same thing as a four-star signee i think that'd be bad process right okay. we know for like for every transfer who works out I can give you five or 10 who don't. There's oftentimes a reason you're transferring. I'm not saying that transfers have zero impact, uh, but for this, I am only looking at at your recruiting ability, not your transfer ability. And I don't know what the proper uh, downgrading, like, like like regression adjustment to make here mm-hmm. for, for transfers, right? Do I, do I take all five-star transfers and make them fours? Do I take fours and make them threes? That could be too harsh. I don't really want to get into decimals on that kind of thing. And it really wasn't ever designed uh, to do that. You know, we, we think the portal, I think it's caused a lot more publicity around transfers. But if you look at the the number of waivers who are being you know, being granted and being processed, it's it's not that much more than, than before, according to the reports that I've read. So I, I don't know that we have that many more transfers as we do that many more publicized transfers because of, of the portal development. What about the quarterback position? Because I I would agree with you that 
the overwhelming majority of transfers are not going to have an impact that correlates to their original star rating. Okay. But the only exception that I, and this is just a gut, this is not me looking at numbers, which is what you do. Uh, quarterback situations like a Joe Burrow or, you know, the extreme example being like a Cam Newton, right? More often than not, I th- that may be the one position where you can have a second life and go power five to power five and still be, you know, successful have that second life is do you do you factor or consider quarterbacks at all? And could that could that challenge your theory? I I really don't. It is just a and it's just a look at the overall talent that you okay. signed. I I don't think any school has won a title with a QB transfer, right? I mean, I like I, I do count junior college kids obviously because they're actually signing a letter of intent. They've they've gone back through the recruiting process. We can actually see. Right. So, so Cam, for instance, Cam obviously leaves Florida, goes to 100%. Blinn, yeah, goes to Blinn Junior College, and then goes through the traditional transfer, JUCO transfer process, ends up at Auburn, wins a national title. I cannot think of a transfer quarterback off the top of my head. I will say this. Uh, in the next three years, we might see one. I, I think it's very possible. Additionally, look, I've long thought that some school would bust through and, and, and break this, right? And we'd okay. have to say, okay, somebody finally did it. And I think the way that happens is, it's a school who is very close to having a, a 50% blue chip ratio, uh, but but not quite there. Okay. And they have an elite quarterback who pushed them over the top. I I thought Mar- Mariota was was going to break it uh, potentially in, what, 14? When, yes. uh, when Ohio State won. Um, they, they were so close uh, to doing that. And, and that that's really been the one that is that has been the closest. Uh, in, in the playoff era, most of these teams who make the playoffs who are not blue chip teams get really whacked. And I guess Ohio State did in, in the title game. They did they did whacking of their own, though, against Florida State, which was a blue chip team, uh, which you know, brings up another good point as far as what this is and what this is not. Yeah. I don't use blue chip ratio to pick games. I don't use blue chip ratio to determine, hey, this team is better than this team. To me, it is simply a necessary but not sufficient condition to winning a national title uh, at, at least over about the last two decades, uh, and and that's it. It's just a list of who I think are legitimate, if everything goes right, title contenders. So it's almost and, like and a certification process versus more of a, a, a ranking. It's more about Correct. if you have this stamp, you can sort of proceed into the conversation. So before we go any further, I'm just going to rattle off the 16, and I'm going to go from uh, the, the lowest ratio to the highest, okay? Uh, so we have Miami at 51%, Florida at 53%, Notre Dame and Washington at 54, Auburn at 58, Oklahoma and Texas both, excuse me, Oklahoma, Texas, Michigan, Penn State, USC, Clemson, all at 60%. And then Florida State at 61, LSU at 64, Georgia at 79, Alabama at 80, and Ohio State at 81, actually above Alabama. So what you're saying here is not bet accordingly, or especially in a head-to-head matchup, use this as some sort of determining factor. It's that all things considered, you've run these numbers over the years. These are the teams who are the who are almost certainly the actual likely pool of national champions. And I will say this. I don't know if anybody would argue that the national champion for 2019 is not on this list. I would I would even be hard pressed right now to find the the most likely playoff participant who's not on this list. Maybe. Maybe, bud, Oregon. If everything breaks right, they beat Washington. They beat Auburn. They run the table. Otherwise, because of the representation of the top end of the Power Five, 
I would feel confident in saying the entire playoff is on this list. So the, has there been a shift here? Because I used to get a lot of feedback from uh, Michigan State fans, TCU fans, Oregon fans, was uh, Wisconsin fans. I'm trying to think who else. Well, I, I think those programs and, and just Oregon named. fans, but now yeah. like it's an Ole Miss fans. It seems like sort of there has been a uh, a drop off in terms of the teams who don't make this list who people actually think have a legitimate shot to win a title. Now, this year, I don't think I've received a single bit of pushback, which well, is so I, odd. I, I think I can explain it to you. <clears throat> that, I don't know what do you call it, supplemental class, subclass of of would-be contenders in Power 5 conference. I think it's all of those schools that are that are aspiring to break into this, this group. You just have to look at them in an individual case-by-case basis. And I think Michigan State has tailed off in the way that they run their system. Oregon obviously went through a lot of coaching change and and therefore their roster talent suffered mightily and just their ability to execute on it. Um, what was the other one you named? I mean, Ole Miss, obviously, NCAA probation. Um, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Wisconsin, I think. I mean, Wisconsin did not have a good year by Wisconsin standards last year. I think you'd be hard-pressed for anybody to say that Wisconsin is the Wisconsin of two years ago. Yeah. And Michigan no, I, State. I, I mean, Michigan I, I State is right. one that really stands out, bud, where it's like, we make a lot of jokes about Michigan State in, in because of the, I don't know how we say this diplomatically, methodical style of play, right? <laughs> Almost reducing everything to the least amount of risk possible. And that actually, that I mean, look, that's won them the Big Ten before, okay? Multiple times. But I also think that the time in which you're talking about, like, let's go back to TCU and Baylor being playoff contenders. You still had some volatility at the very, very top, and I don't think you had as many programs that had truly solidified the way Alabama had. Ohio State, you go back to the year that, so Baylor, TCU, Oregon, Ohio State is not quite at that level yet. They they arrived that year, but we weren't able really to, you know, I don't think you could forecast them as being Alabama adjacent because they went in and surprised the hell out of Alabama that year. So I think you have more extremely good programs at the top and I do think that eliminates doubt in the mid-range. I, I agree with you. Yeah, the, 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 I, in some ways, some of those teams rose up because some of the like super top-tier programs were not necessarily operating at peak efficiency, and it created a bit of a a, a power vacuum in that sort of mid to high-level range uh, for for some of those teams. I'm I'm also of the opinion that the playoff uh, has made it tougher yes. for a, a, a Cinderella to win the national title because you have to win back-to-back games against teams who most likely are going to have a lot more talent than you if, if you are that Cinderella team. Well, if you have the Boise State uh, Statue of Liberty moment, you have to do it twice. Yeah, that's I mean, exactly. that's a hell of a lot harder. Uh, well, and, in that game, they did it twice because they, they also pulled off the, the hook and ladder. But, right, um, but then you have to turn around a week later against a completely different offensive defense and do it again. And that's just... I mean, the odds are just that much worse. In fact, oh, it's right. funny, you wrote about this in the newsletter. You said, in 2014, no team was above 75%. In 2015, only Alabama was. In 2016 and 17, it was still just Bama. None of this is shocking, by the way. 2018 saw Ohio State get into that super elite class. Now, 2019 has three of the four highest blue chip ratios ever. <clears throat> in Alabama, uh, Alabama in 2017 was at 80%. So frequently a team, co- you said, you wrote, uh, frequently a team comes close to the 80% mark, but have never... Uh, but never have the top three all been anywhere near this high. And Georgia is fractions of a percentage point from cracking the 80% barrier with Alabama and Ohio State. So I think that answers it right there. If you, I mean, 
I got a lot of flack from our from our loyalists last year because I really emotionally felt flat at the top of college football in, in terms of discussing it, in terms of trying to find something new, different dynamic, because it was so chalky. I mean, it was really chalky until the first quarter of the national championship game, you could argue, right? This year oh, yeah. I feel I feel probably twice as strong about that happening. I would be hard pressed to see a, a playoff right now that is not Alabama, Ohio State. Georgia and Clemson in no order. That's just how I rattled it off. I would bet that. I would bet. I mean, I'd, I'd come close to betting a house on that, man. I mean, I, it's. I think that is the foremost likely uh, teams to make it. Probably now, I'm not convinced that the SEC get, gets gets two teams in. Uh, if if you have a Big Ten team with one loss and and a quality schedule, or uh, perhaps a Big Twelve team, Texas or Oklahoma. But then again, you know, Georgia got left out last year. So there, there may be some mm-hmm. uh, some cause to kind of push for them if if they do like if Georgia Bama go undefeated in, in, into the SEC title game and and Georgia loses close uh, or or Bama loses close, I think they're going to have a good chance to, to to make it in. Now you did bring up an interesting point here that, that I want to point out, and and I kind of already said this with don't use this to pick games, right? Mm-hmm. Don't say hey this team is better because they their blue chip ratio is higher. No, I, I just think. Clearing the ben- the benchmark is is all I really care about here. And a good example is Clemson, right? Clemson is at 61%. Clemson just whipped Alabama. Now, obviously, I don't think any of us really believe they're four touchdowns or whatever. Better than Alabama, we, we, we get that. But uh, they they were better. And they only had a 61% ratio. So to me, it's assign this minimum amount of talent and then develop it. Got we've it. seen teams with 50% win. We've seen teams with 80% win. Hey, just, bud. Speaking of development, let's just go ahead and use this segment to pile on USC for the 200th time this offseason. <laughs> USC sits at 60% in the blue chip ratio, which is the exact same neighborhood as Clemson, Michigan, Texas, Penn State, Oklahoma. They're only four, they're only four percentage points behind LSU. Okay. Uh, is this the most damning statistic we could create about USC right now? I think it is, honestly. Probably so, especially because you've seen UCLA's number uh, consistently drop. I mean, they're just, they're nowhere close now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, some of the most disappointing teams, right? USC kind of on a, a decline recently, uh, for sure. And without being really at, at, at the peak heights. Florida State as well, right? They've they've declined, uh, I think, in the last five seasons on the field. Uh, ever since the national title, pretty progressively worse each year or or close to it. Um, so, like I said, this is just one of the one of the key elements you need. But it is a key element that you need. Uh, I I still write this because a lot of people ask for it every year, right? It's popular; mm-hmm. it gets people talking. But I don't. I just I don't hear the pushback anymore for some reason. People didn't maybe half decade ago. They didn't want to accept that talent was a necessary ingredient to winning a national title, uh, but now they they seem like like they do. It's well, just not the only ingredient. It is definitely not the only ingredient. We can get into the situationals all day long, but the bottom line is like you pretty much have to clear a benchmark at certain positions. I don't think anybody would argue with that. I will point out, by the way, because I'm not done beating. I'm not. I'm. I'm not done curb stomping Clay Hilton yet. 2016, 2017, 2018. Now 2019. Okay, that's how long he's been head coach, and he was interim in 15, if, for whatever that's worth in terms of recruiting. 
You mentioned Florida State earlier, first-year head coach last year, right? Cratered recruiting situation we've talked about on previous shows. All right? Look at the situation at Florida, mind you, who's at 53%, right? Similar situation with Jim McElwain. Dan Mullen has just got there, all right? There's no reason you are this bad at USC unless you cannot develop talent. It's it, it, it for, To be 60% in this, in this ranking is insane for as bad a football team as that is right now. And your competition in the Pac-12 South is is not exactly good. I mean, when you yeah, I was gonna say when you get into when you then you start you, you talk about scheduling, right? I mean, LSU might win less this year just because, or, or or any of the SEC schools might win less just because by virtue of the conference that they play in. USC is just this is yet another reminder why this program is supposed to be minimum nine ten wins a year. It just is. Now, uh, I started off the segment we haven't even gotten there yet. You put out a line graph, and I, we were retweeting it and talking about it. Um, Penn State is remarkable in this statistic. It is, it really is remarkable. Now, I will say this: I've known James Franklin a long time since he was at Vanderbilt. Um, he has a, I, I would say, an artist's panache for rubbing people the wrong way. Um, and a lot of people always want to change the perspective on how he accomplished something. So the year that you know Vanderbilt beats Georgia, Florida, Tennessee. Um, pretty much everybody in the SEC, all of a sudden it's, well, you know, there was this situation, that situation, whatever. That's fine. That's true. But he's gone to Penn State and he did what Bill O'Brien could not do or decided not to do and left. And what a lot of people thought may never happen again at Penn State, which is he has recruited them back into the relevance of being a national power. Um, part of the reason your line graph looks so wonky is because of the state of the roster when he got there. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Penn State was down at like 20 in the low 20s and, and and now they're what high 50s i, I think <clears throat> you've got them at 60 right now 60 there we go so they've got the same amount of talent as usc again mind-boggling um gonna be really interesting to see what the end game looks like at penn state um is this something where franklin feels like you know you can surpass ryan day there's still a hump to get over a very a very identifiable red one in Ann Arbor. So you can't really feel like Michigan is an established national power. I think they're still in progress. Obviously, they are very, very good at what they are doing, but they are still TBD. Um, this kind of feels like the, it feels like the window now for Penn State to establish themselves in a way that they have not in decades. And there's no better proof of that than the way that they have gone about quietly assembling talent. Yeah, and, and if Penn State keeps recruiting like this, I don't really see a, a reason why their window won't stay open. Yeah, you know, like I, I, I'm not seeing any signs that Michigan all of a sudden is is going to mash the gas and and take the recruiting to, you know, two or three tiers of, of, above where they currently are. It, it's almost impossible for Ohio State to go up anymore. Um, yeah, you know, the Penn State's in a really really tough division here, uh, but them. They and, and also Washington have really been the two uh, who have improved just drastically over the last five, six years in the blue chip ratio. Uh, but if you had to pick three programs to enter the blue chip ratio next year and three of these programs to leave, who would you pick? Ooh, okay. Uh, to leave. Yeah. Uh, obviously, so at the bottom right now, you have Washington, Notre Dame, Florida, and Miami at 54% or less. I, ooh, I don't think any of them are going to leave. Okay, they're all sort of in the 
I look, the odds probably say one of them leaves, but but I don't I don't think any of them are going to leave. Like both, almost all of them have been on a a fairly steady climb, um, and I it's a four year rolling average, right? So there's mm-hmm. generally not drastic movement uh, one year to the next. UCLA, we'll talk about in a minute. They 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 had some drastic one year movement, um, but there's generally not that much. There's a couple teams I, I think who could could enter the fray. Uh, Texas A&M is is very close. Tennessee, I think maybe in a year or two, wow, could get there. Okay. Um, which again, back to our South Carolina discussion. Um, that's a tough schedule they draw every single year, and now A&M really kind of re- returning because A&M was there back in, in in like the Manziel days. Um, those two, and then I'm trying to think who else, uh, Oregon. Cristobal is, is doing a, a really good job there. I, I think in a year or two, they could get there. I will say this. if you Did you ask me for three or four? Because if you ask me for four, I'm stumped. I don't think there's anybody else close. Okay. No, I asked for three, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because I don't know if I could just pull one off the top of my head where I feel like they would break through in a big dynamic way unless it's, I mean, Tennessee and or I guess any you know resurgent SEC program of the moment. Uh, notably absent on here, bud. Anyone from the Big Ten West, and also notably absent from the Who Could Come Next call. You don't. I mean, uh, so again, this is a uh, <laughs> this is your uh, let's just say uh, offhanded insult of Nebraska's resurgence. Oh, I, I think Nebraska long term is is probably going to get back right um, because they're going to give Scott Frost plenty of time to do so. Right, like a decade. They're, they're going to be patient with him. It. If Nebraska gets back, it probably looks like Washington's very incremental uh, recruiting climb. Okay, they're they're not close to being on this list. They are two or three years away at least. Um, nobody else in the Big Ten West is is really even close. It, it's yeah, it's the only division with, with, without a member. Um, about Washington, though, actually, you bring them up. They they got back here. Um, in the in the quietest way possible, basically, just year over year, a little bit by a little bit by a little bit. Uh, yes, they did. Um, they're probably the best example of something that I think a lot of fans hope for, but what rarely happens, and that is typically if you're going to flip a program around, you, you need to really kill it in your first two full recruiting classes. I've always thought, right, especially that first full class, uh, especially not the short season class. <laughs> To be sure, from for when you're hired and you only have a couple weeks to put it together. But the first, you're talking about your the real first year, yeah, the first full year of, of your staff recruiting together, and then actually the, the first two full years are a really big deal. Um, Washington's first two classes on, under Peterson were were not that elite, right? They were an improvement. Uh, I, I guess you could probably argue he was hitting out of the park compared to what uh, what they had been doing. But, yeah, this was just incremental crime. I mean, they, or, uh, climb. You know, they went from low 20s to low 20s, and then they kind of got up around, like, low 30s for about two years. And, and they, the last two years, they've, they've really made a pretty big jump. And, and remember, this is a four-year rolling average. So part of it's who you sign, and part of it is w- which data is cycling out of the equation. Uh but Washington is probably a good example, probably the best example I have recently of, hey, this team won, uh, and then recruits started to take notice, which I think is probably what Nebraska fans have to hope is going is going to happen. Penn State is different, right? They, they've both reached similar places, but Penn State's 
uh, slope continuously is is higher because Franklin started recruiting pretty well there almost immediately. Washington's climb is is more flat initially and then very steep after they started winning and, and making it to the BCS bowls or, or near six bowls. Um, See? But that's probably the model that I think a lot of programs out there think, hey, if we win, the recruits will come. Yeah. A lot of times that's not the case, right? But Washington should give some, some fans in, in, in Lincoln hope. Is that, I mean, is that like because of the location in Seattle and it was an underserved market and Oregon fell off? Or is that because Peterson's that good? Like, I, we we have to ask these questions uh, with a great deal of speculation because Washington is notoriously closed off in the way that they interact with the media and they don't like to talk about their process. I, I think that's, that's part of it. Um, specifically, Oregon falling off, right? And, yeah. and not recruiting well under uh, uh, Helfrich. Mark Helfrich. Yeah. Yeah. Like Washington took advantage of that for sure. Oregon is back now. Uh, but yet I think Washington did such a good job taking advantage of the void left by Oregon kind of exiting the elite recruiting game uh, for a little while at least. Uh, that I, I think Washington is, is mostly here to stay with their classes, assuming that they don't start going eight and four and, and, and seven and five. You know, if they're still winning 10 games a year, I think a lot of recruits are still going to look very favorably uh, yeah. upon Washington. Um, last thing, explain what the hell UCLA does or doesn't do in this thing. Uh, well, they were uh, in it for uh, for two-year period in 15 and 16. Uh, Jim Mora look at you, Jim a really Mora. good job of, of signing athletes and uh, not so good of a job of developing them. And then once kids realized that Jim Mora was not doing a good job uh, developing those athletes, their uh, their percentages started to drop uh, precipitously. And then Chip Kelly, uh, their recruiting last year was just uh, terrible. Um, they, I wrote about this back back when we were still in SB Nation, and, and you guys can still find it. It's actually linked uh, within the Banner Society piece that we wrote here, but. UCLA was way too picky for the quality program that they are. And I understand yeah. being more picky than, than they were before and needing to flip a culture. And I think that UCLA is one of the teams who is going to give its, its head coach just a ton of time to, well, to either yeah, fail Yeah, I think, I mean, they have to. Just, yeah, the amount of money that's invested right now with the facilities change that they're going through and then what, what it took to get him to Westwood um, – yeah. A lot of people just assume he's going to plug in and turn them into like Oregon of 10 years ago. But I mean, in a recruiting aspect, he hasn't blown anybody away yet. Well, it was so far below expectation. I mean, they almost sat last year out and that, and, and it, it's going to affect his ability to, um, it's going to affect his ability to succeed in the short term. I'm not going to write Chip Kelly off in the long term, but that was their first full class that they had to sign. And it what was happened, really, Bill? I mean, what, what, like what happened with, with the build? Like, shouldn't you be in, I mean, you just got done saying that, you know, the, the first, the first full cycle through is your most important. So, so if you're building out like that, what happened? Uh, I think they misevaluated a lot of things. They were way too picky in, in terms of offers they sent out. Uh, and when they did identify a kid and, and they used some different criteria for, for identifying kids, certain, Personality metrics, character metrics, athletic metrics, etc., et mm-hmm. and they did hone in on some elite kids. Here's the problem: for a while there, they were like 0 for 40 something 
as far as signing the four and five star kids who they actually decided to offer. Wow. I mean, it was. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. So it's like, okay, you guys are really picky. Uh, if you're going to be that picky, you better be damn good at at signing the signing the elite kids who you think actually are a fit for your system. Now, I would expand the net a little bit, right, uh, and and try to work on the on the character and, and culture issues a little more with program development as opposed to just going so hard in, in the recruiting field. But you also did not have good recruiters. That's the thing. If you're going to be that that picky, you've got to be able to. to you know, it, it's almost like baseball, right? If you're a guy that's going to take a lot of pitches and only swing at a cert, certain you know, certain number, you better hit those. Right. You know, otherwise, take more swings. Uh, I guess if if we're trying to do like rose colored glasses for UCLA, because Mora was able to land talent, it is proof positive that LA can share blue chips and elite talent, and that Southern California is deep enough to do that. Um, but it is no guarantee that Kelly would be able to replicate that. We assume again that he would because he was a a national title caliber coach at another Pac-12 program. I mean, when's the last time he was at Oregon? What year did he leave Oregon? Eleven or twelve? I'm gonna stall real fast here, bud. I, I, I hit, hit Godfrey with that cold question, so I, I, I will. Uh... I'll vamp for a minute here. Uh, so UCLA had offered 47 four- and five-star prospects in California, and they had signed one of them. 2012. Okay. So uh, in 2012, eight years ago, the class of 2020 was in third grade. They don't okay. remember who Chip Kelly is. They don't remember Darren Thomas or uh, DeAnthony Thomas or those dudes. They're, they're not relevant to today's current recruits, especially if you're not a program with a lot of history and uh, – you know, UCLA is is not. So you pull up, oh, you remember this guy, Morgan? No, I don't. I don't remember Jonathan Stewart. I was I was eight years old. Um, Bud pulling out the dirtiest trick in the book and the one that I reserve specifically for Notre Dame fans, which is no one cares about your tradition because they don't remember it if they're playing football. But this is a very good point. Uh, Bud Elliott, author, proprietor, inventor of the blue chip ratio. This sounds familiar. Um, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see. Hey, you I need to make a correction real quick, so I, I go I, for I, it. I don't get roasted. Uh, there are forty-seven four and five star prospects in California. UCLA signed one. They actually did not offer all forty-seven four and five stars. Who was the they one? They offered forty-four and five stars in last year's class, uh, and 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 signed one of those. Who so, was the one? Do you know? Uh, Sean Ryan, really really nice looking offensive lineman. Congrats uh, out of to Cali. Him. Uh, I think he'll play early and often for them. Congrats to him, Bud Elliott. I will see you as we walk uh, with our audience and ourselves hand in hand into week zero, sir. All right. Take care. Um, before we get into serious college football discussion, that uh, that errant white claw in my uh, refrigerator, you're the only millennial I talk to, so you have to deal with this. Um, I tried Ain't it. no laws with the claws, baby. Uh, that is terrible. And it's not. It's not that bad. Here's I don't even deal. like LaCroix. It's not that bad. Here's what I don't understand. Um I I the 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 news media, young Richard, tells me that your your generation enjoys experiences over items. That that's how millennials spend their money. They'd rather spend money on an experience than a than an item they possess. That was a shitty experience, that white claw. Well, drink six of them and then see how shitty the experience is. Well, then why, why aren't you just buying like a sixer of High Life for like four bucks or something? Well, no, that's the point. It's like it's lighter so it's, than it is High, High Life. Life. 
It's lighter than High Life. That's the point. That's the real point. How much booze is in a can of White Claw? It's like 5%. So it's a beer. But the thing is, yeah, but no, it's not a beer because it, it it's not as heavy as even the lightest beer. That is one that is the one like thing you, that I will actually give well, White Claw. How are you hive. defining heavy? Caloric? Uh yeah, and then also that just like beer feeling. I mean, I know High Life's like basically water, but you know, it's still beer. What yeah, is the alcohol the, like, in a White Claw? Feeling. Oh, uh, White Claw is what, like 5, 5.5? No, 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 no. What is the, isn't it just malt liquor? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. I j- if I just, if I drink seven of them, I get drunk. That's all I know. Alcohol in White Claw. Uh, 5% alcohol and just a hint of natural flavors. Um, Yeah, it's malt. It's malt liquor, huh. dude. I mean, they call look, it something else. It comes look, man, from I- fermented sugars derived from malt and gluten- no, I mean, it's it's basically like an iteration of malt liquor. I don't drink it because I'm on a diet. I drink it because it's kind of cheap and it's sometimes in front of me. Does it? I do uh, not discriminate. I'll drink I an IPA. I can't, I can't, I can't even line. ask someone with a two in front of their age about hangovers because I'm in a completely different pantheon of hangovers. But I assume it feels about the same as getting beer drunk. Yeah, but the thing is, it you can, you can house White Claws quicker than you can house high lifes i'll give you that i mean you can you can Mm. do three high lifes in like 15 minutes and Mm. or uh, Mm. uh, three white claws Mm. in 15 minutes and you're like good not that i would know of course sounds like a challenge i mean i'm going to the beach this weekend so we'll see sounds like a challenge young man um why this is an objective question because no one knows the answer why are former Alabama assistants Mike Loxley and, and Josh Gaddish, who worked together on a what inarguably successful offense, why are they arguing with one another in public? This is very weird. It's like my two dads are fighting. Um, yeah, I, I think the the Gaddis and Loxley thing is interesting. Even before we get to the substance of the actual argument, I think one of the most interesting things is that we've got two black coaches arguing about who did or did not call plays, who can and cannot call plays. And I'll say that that is, frankly, quite refreshing because black coaches and coaches of color in general do not get the benefit of the doubt as schemers and whiteboard thinkers. Um, They're the guys who are, quote unquote, recruiters and good at the relationships with teenagers because they speak the language, so to speak, i.e. they listen to rap music. Um but yeah, these these guys are having an argument, having a tiff about who called plays and who didn't, who can scheme and who can't, who had actual intellectual, uh, you know, weight over the game plan for arguably the most successful program in recent college football history. Not arguably the most. Successful doesn't it program. hurt the? But doesn't it hurt that effort then that they're they're, you know, backbiting? No, I don't think so. Um, it doesn't look good, th- and it's really weird, and it's also it doesn't t- look it it doesn't look good. And I'll tell you this: it doesn't look good, and this is a little bit of the we shouldn't do this out loud in front of white people because they're listening type thing. But the code, the the code. Um, but at the end of the day, I would rather this be the argument. I'd rather have a substantive conversation with two black coaches about scheme, game plan, uh, the intellectual side of the sport than I would about some recruiting thing with Damian Craig being upset with somebody else about Uh, stealing a recruit. 
I that was actually the first thing I thought of was was the uh, this sort of unspoken agreement because they're in a uh, uh, they're minority of a minority when you're talking about offensive play calling minority head coaches um, that they would kind of do this in public just seemed very odd and sort of against the effort to to try and dehomogenize uh, assistant coaches in college football. Uh, the other thing is this: I know a lot of people on that on on these staffs and. Um, just to back up here, Mike Loxley was named head coach at Maryland. Okay. Um, he was still offensive coordinator with Alabama, obviously, as they were going through and building their, uh, their playoff run. Josh Gaddis was on that staff. Gaddis was receiving a lot of attention. One of the places he was receiving attention from was Mike Loxley. Like Mike Loxley wanted to take him to college park. Um, they made an offer to him. I don't, this is what I don't understand. I haven't, I've, I, I, this story is kind of hard to, to parse because like the Michigan media has been all over it because they feel like it's delegitimizing their new play caller. And there is very much a sort of hive mindset around Michigan media. Shocking. I know. I'm sure this will be in the next John Bacon book. Uh, and then you have the, the reporters in the, in the DC Baltimore area writing about this. And are we debating that I see some places here where Loxley's acting like he didn't offer Gaddis a job. Is is that true? That's I, I, that's a joke. That Dude, is a he, joke. It's not that. It's not even. It's we're not even talking about offering or not. Wasn't it? Wasn't well, he Gattis, did. He like, was he was headed the, there before. No, no, no. I know. I'm not. I, what I'm saying is this goes beyond offer. I'm saying Gaddis, like for all intents and purposes, took the job before Jim Harbaugh called. I texted with a coach that has worked with both of them in the last two years. And they just said, I have no idea what's going on. I have no like, idea this is this, this is like a soccer transfer deadline thing where you've got one player who is like, not just was offered by one team, like literally signed and was like, or uh, literally was about to go on his medical and sign the contract. And then the other club swoops in and, and, and pips him. They call it a gazumping. That's your European soccer so, term of the day. Is this all because Gaddis did the okie doke, you think, and went to Michigan? I mean, look, it's hard to, it's really hard to argue with. And I think even Loxley would admit this probably, well, not publicly because he's got to represent the Maryland brand, but I mean, in every coaching circle and, and little gossip tree in the world, no one's going to look at you funny for turning down a, a, a freshly accepted OC job at Maryland to be the OC at Michigan. It's just, I mean, for Shea Patterson, that roster, the situation Michigan's in right now, you know. Maryland's a rebuild. I mean, Maryland's it's just also Maryland. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not trying say. to be mean about it, but like, like Maryland's Maryland it, and Michigan's Michigan. I think this, I think this jump was entirely logical and would probably be made by anyone. Like it wasn't just that Gaddis was on the staff with Mike Loxley either at Alabama. If Gaddis had still been at Penn State or if this had been someone else entirely, any other OC, by the way, black or white, doesn't really matter. If you agreed in principle and were sort of on your way to College Park and then Michigan called, this is probably what would happen nine out of ten times. And I don't really understand the tenth situation, but I would just assume that there would be some variance. Um, it's poor form for this to happen in public. For two coaches who are pretty good at their jobs in terms of being offensive coaches, obviously they had a lot of success at Alabama. Kind of hard to argue with that, right? Um, I think Gaddis is actually probably under more pressure than Loxley is right now. Because you have a situation where you've got Shea Patterson, they want instant results. They're trying to break through the barrier of beating Ohio State and becoming, uh, you know, playoff contender, national title contenders. We talked about that with Bud um, in the last segment. Just in terms of blue chip ratio, Michigan being not a fully established brand, 
relative to like, you know, Penn State's won the conference under James Franklin. Obviously, Ohio State was what it was under Urban. So uh, Michigan has a lot of pressure on it. And I think Gaddis has a lot of pressure on him. I don't understand why they're trying to do this in public. It seems very strange. Why not just diplomatically say, hey, we work together? Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what the gain is from lo- – I'm trying to figure out what the gain is from Loxley's side for It looks doing shitty, this. man. It just I, does. I think it – yeah, I think it looks worse for Loxley than it does for Gaddis. Like, in a way, I, I think this should be beneath Loxley as the head coach of a different school who has his own – I mean, who has his own offensive coordinator, um, Scotty Montgomery, tutored by David Cutcliffe. Like, you've got your own – like, you, you didn't – the second choice for the job is somebody who I think is a pretty good offensive mind as well. And it should be kind of boosting him. But like, I I think we should kind of go really quickly through like the order of operations here. Like obviously what happened in January happened where Gaddis was like ready to take the Maryland job basically did. And then Harbaugh called, offered him the Michigan job and he, he went to Michigan. Um, And so this stems from what this stems from a media day thing. Yeah. Um, this stems from a media day thing. Uh, Gaddis said, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Loxley. He called every play. There were never any comments about that. I'm 100% confident that I can call plays too. Mike's mm-hmm. Lo- Mike Loxley can say I watched him call every play, but ask him where the game plans usually ca- came from. So I'm fine with that. He did call every play, and I've got a notebook upstairs with all the game plans written down in them, uh, but I've got tremendous respect for him, obviously. And then Loxley, like, said he didn't have a chance to respond, and then he did the thing where he was like, well, I don't care to comment on that, uh, but I am, because I'd like to put it to bed. Um, And then he kind of did the thing where he kind of was... I thought it was a little kind of condescending where he was like, I've been a first time play caller before back in 2005. I know the anxiety that comes with it. Josh knows the truth. That's really important to understand that kind of stuff. So right right, right there, you got to take the high road and you got to contact him privately and say, hey, dude, what the fuck are you saying? What's going on here? And then publicly, what you say as a head coach in the Big Ten is. It's a collaborative effort. Obviously, I was the offensive coordinator as well as the actual literal play caller. But everything that we do, it comes as a staff like pablum, blah, 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 blah. OK, because the reality is this. This is we'll we've got other stuff to cook here. So there is no right answer, by the way. And what pisses me off more than anything is that you're seeing not so much Maryland media. But let's be honest, it's this Michigan media is trying to legitimize their guy. OK. And then in response, people are trying to figure out, well, what's the absolute truth here? Here's the absolute truth. It's a collaborative effort. I'm telling you that after doing years and years and years of embeds on defensive staffs, on offensive staffs, every effective offensive coordinator works the room in assembling a game plan. So I can tell you without a doubt that I think Mike Loxley probably actually called the plays. Okay. In other words, he selected this play at this moment and said, you know, spider Y banana, right? Okay. At the same time, Sunday through Thursday, and even up until Friday night, and sometimes even Saturday morning, offensive staffs sit and pick, and and they they come up with any number of hypotheticals. They install plays based off of situations and personnel. Okay, so we don't really like what we don't specifically like what opponent X is doing on third and long. Okay, so we're gonna pick 
the, the play red, play blue, play purple, whatever, instead of play orange this week. Okay. And that debate can go on forever. I've watched it happen. I've fallen asleep in it. Like, this is a collaborative effort. There is absolutely no way in hell that Mike Loxley built that offense on his own. Josh Gaddis had a tremendous amount of input. Was he the technical play caller? No. Does he is he qualified to call plays at Michigan? Sure. This but is so if, stupid. Even if like on even, we're not we're not even talking about the 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 actual game plan install things. Even on Saturday, like in the booth, Gaddis would be like, "Hey, I'm seeing this," or my guys are coming back yes. and saying, "This corner is doing this," or "This safety showing this and doing that," or they're rolling the coverage. Da 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 da. We should call this that we may have. Like Gaddis still can have input on what play they're going to call next series on first down to open things up. But and 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 not actually call that play into the signalers who then signal it to Tua. Like it's it's not as cut and dry as like the buck completely stops with Mike Loxley. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just gonna go ahead and put the verdict on Loxley on this one. Just well, the, take, the if your guy is talking out of turn and and he's making it seem like he was some sort of I don't know wizard and unheralded genius then you contact him privately and you talk to him and then you take the high road publicly otherwise well, this is I, you're punching down i don't get why and and this is this is something we did we didn't say but the the actual genesis of this was like we said at big 10 media days and loxley was asked about like having gaddis as his his coordinator at at bam or his co-coordinator I should say and like like how easy would it have been for loxley to say He's a great coach. Like we really, you know, we worked well together or, you know, whatever you have to say. But Loxley did the thing where he was like, oh, he he like didn't say he didn't specifically address the question about Gaddis and said, oh, I was impressed with all my assistants. And so, like, yeah, that's not going to sit well with Josh Gaddis. I get that. Like, I do think this is much more on Loxley than it is on Gaddis because Loxley could have not even set off any of this if he would have just said, yeah, Josh Gaddis is a great coach. I really enjoyed working with him. We had great success at Alabama. We almost won a national championship. Uh, real quick before we transition, I will say this. Scotty Montgomery is the actual play caller now at uh, Maryland. Don't sleep on that. Uh, that's I know he had a disastrous run at ECU, but ECU is sort of crumbling as an infrastructure, and he may not be fit to be a head coach just in terms of qualification. It just wasn't there, maybe. But he's a really good offensive coach. I mean, he came... He came highly, highly recommended by David Cutcliffe out of Duke. So I, uh, that was yeah, a really but- good hire. With Scotty, I think Scotty's interesting because, you know, he walked into an ECU that I think was at a very interesting stage. Obviously, they got rid of Ruffin McNeil when they did, kind of out of the blue, and no one really knew what was going on there. Um, and, you know, they had this pedigree of really talented offense, obviously Lincoln Riley being there, all this kind of stuff. And then they bring in uh, Scotty Montgomery, and I'm not sure he walked into the same ECU as was high-flying in 2012, 13, 14. Um but I, I will say this, like having spoken to Scotty Montgomery personally, like Scotty Montgomery is a product of actual coach incubation. Like when you get these guys in as GAs, you can mold them into whatever type of position coach um, you want them to be. Scotty Montgomery played wide receiver. Um, and, and he came in to Cutcliffe's staff and Cutcliffe saw the, the, the talent with him schematically and was like, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of mold you into a bit of a quarterback coach OC type of thing. And that's the kind of incubation that, uh, coaches of color need 
to move forward because as we see with the lack of black coaches in college football, you know, a lot of head coaches, most all of them, the vast majority were coordinators first. And it's harder for African-American coaches and coaches of color to become coordinators because they, they get position switched when they get to college or when they get to the league. And so when you get a guy like Scotty Montgomery, uh, who graduated well, well enough to go to grad school, to go to a grad assistant program, um, you go to a grad assistant program and you get the time to be incubated and be taught. And, and with time, you get brought along and, and your career blossoms. And so that's that's why Scotty Montgomery is something of a success story, even though, of course, ECU did not go well. Georgia Southern. Nothing happened there the last week. Not a damn thing. Um, yeah, so this is this will be a fun exercise here. Um, Shy Wirtz, quarterback of Georgia Southern. Uh, he is from Clinton, South Carolina. Uh, Shy was arrested the 31st of July. We had a period of time in which it broke like any other normal piece of news. Pretty typical pattern for off-season player arrest that he was arrested for possession of cocaine after he was pulled over speeding in South Carolina, was suspended for the first game. It was announced that he was suspended for the first game, which is a road game at LSU, which, you know, substantial. <laughs> um, it then breaks that after further testing, uh, and I'll have to jump around a little bit on timeline stuff here, um, the actual substance that was identified as cocaine in a field test kit was not it was bird shit on the hood of his car specifically a dodge charger i also um, i i want to before we go a little bit further you know we're, we're talking a lot about shy words but you know when when you google shy words forever this is the thing that's going to come up um and i want to say that the reporting officers on the incident report um the saluda county sheriff's office in south carolina deputy charles browder and sergeant dave rogers i think a lot of when these things happen um, the cops kind of go unnamed and the suspect, whether he did something or not, is the name that we always hear. And even right. on the YouTube, even on, on, on YouTube, it's the kid's mugshot is the YouTube thumbnail, even though he, you know, got off scot-free um, on on this thing that he was pulled over for. And, you know, it's it's not as it's not his team roster picture. It's his mugshot. Uh, on Friday. Uh, it was in circuit court in South Carolina. They basically dismissed everything the judge said that he reviewed the dash cam, the body cam, the actual police report, charge lacks prosecu- prosecutorial, nailed it, merit, and the evidence is insufficient for the state to proceed. Basically, they threw it all out. Okay. Um, of course, he was shy, is now going to play against LSU. Everything was dropped there. Um, there was essentially no discipline function for him at Georgia Southern. I mean, they basically sort of explained it away quickly in the press um, that he had, you know, it was almost like a time serve thing. You know, all he really did was he got pulled over for speeding. Um, and then there were a bunch of really, really supportive statements of shy from the coach, from uh, Chad Lunsford, from the athletic director, Tom Kleinlein, kind of after the fact. And then he spoke to the media and that was sort of it until the footage came out. Um, you got the feeling and when I say I got the feeling, I got the feeling from talking to people at Georgia Southern on both sides of the uh, administration slash coaching side, as well as the uh, fan booster Statesboro community side. There's a little bit of a disconnect there. People were very frustrated. Um, the The question outside of the outside of the building, so to speak, was why was there this gap? 
In other words, if you go back through, and I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've probably seen the news headlines where he's debating or, or pleading with the cops saying, hey, look, that's that's bird poop. He says well, it over and over uh, again. Hold on. Let's let's go really quickly and talk. We, we haven't really said exactly kind of what happened step by step here, and we can do it quickly. But basically, Shywertz was speeding, frankly. Um, you know, they clocked him at, I think, going 80 miles an hour. It's, you know, it's a dusty kind of country road, uh, country state road in South Carolina. Uh, they pull him over. Um, they were talking, uh, basically Shywertz slowed down because he was calling 911 to say, Hey, these cops are tailing me. He was on the phone with dispatch saying, I want to get into a more lit area. Um, so I'm going to slow down. And I, I mean, from the cops perspective, it, not necessarily running because he's not going that fast and his, his hazards are on. So, like, it's pretty clear he's not running from the cops, but he's he's on the phone with 911 saying, hey, um, you know, I'm trying to get into a, a, a better lit area. I don't want to just pull off in the middle of the dark. And so he pulls off and like you can tell when the cop gets out of the car. And what I what I encourage everybody do to do if they can is pull up both the dash cam footage and the body cam footage and watch them next to each other. Um, the body cam footage obviously has the audio because it's on the the officer's body. Um, and so he gets out and you could tell the cop like d- like initially doesn't believe the base assertion that uh, Shywartz is saying where he's like, hey, like I didn't feel safe. So we took a little ride a little bit to get into a, a better lit area. Um, and, you know, it gets to the point where. They go up to the front of the car and they see this white substance on the front of the car. And it's not just a little bit. You can see in the video multiple times. It's like the whole length of the kid's hood. And then they test it and it tests positive on two field tests per the arrest or uh, per the incident report. Um, it tests positive for substance. And then they obviously cuff him and, and put him in the back of the cop car. And the whole time he's saying it's bird poop. It's literally bird poop. So we have this window of time and... Other than the disconnect, we'll get, we'll get to the policing part of it in a second. The thing that I'm curious about is you have a guy in words who, by literally all accounts to me, and and if you don't know, I'll talk about my connection to Georgia Southern in a second. Um, every account to me was uh, everything that you would want to hear. Team leader, good kid, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? So he comes to Georgia Southern and says, this happened. I swear to you, this is not, you know, I'm, I'm not using cocaine, there was not cocaine smeared across the hood of my car in the middle of the night. You know, he's very honest and forthright. And he says, but I've been arrested for this. You guys need to know what's going on. I'm I am curious from the administrative side of Georgia Southern why this was handled in such a manner. Now, here's well, what, what do you my, mean? What do you mean here, such a manner? I'm telling you. They could have not announced a suspension, right? I think you have to look at it tactically from their sta- their standpoint. If they knew this was going to be dismissed. If they believed him 110% that this was some bizarre error of the field test. And just as an asterisk, and there's a lot in this story, these field tests have uh, uh, nationwide, these these field tests for identifying cocaine specifically have a lot of false positives. There's an immense amount of things because the the different chemicals that are involved in that drug that can create a positive, a false positive. And you can yeah, see co- how incredulous those cops are um, when it hits a, as a positive. So... If you're Georgia Southern, we spent a weekend change and like LSU Twitter is making jokes because it's LSU's opening opponent, not because they care. But like everyone's like, oh, you know, the kids on cocaine, whatever. Like I'm seeing Ernest Biner jokes from back in the day. All right. 
why is Georgia Southern letting that operate for a week and a half? This is my this is if you believe your if you believe your player, all right, and his lawyer's been in touch with you, and you guys have gone about the right process of notifying everybody internally, and Georgia Southern was not caught off guard. Um, why would you not double down and just say, hey, there's been an incident? We are waiting resolution of this. We will have comment at a later date, right? So often, I would, Richard, I, we, I, I, but we I, get in this position where we as the media hit up for immediate comment and we see that response. And, and now more than ever, that response is valuable because it signals, hey, there's more to this to come. Well, and the they thing didn't do I that. I think you may be missing here is the other arrest. I mean, they've got, it was two players arrested on the same day. And it, it was both shy words, and then they have a defensive end who was arrested and charged with multiple uh, multiple felonies. Like, I'm talking about more than three felony charges at the time. Just to be clear, this is not the same incident. This was completely separate. Two separate incidents, two separate players. Uh, but it happened on the same day. Wait, I think it was August 1st or the July 31st. Um, yeah, happened on the same day. So Georgia Southern, I think, is in... F- pretty full crisis management mode because you know it's it's on august or on august 1st whatever that day is it's not just the normal oh they were smoking weed in their dorm room it's i got one player over here with multiple felonies and at this point as far as i know if i'm georgia southern on august 1st i got another player with cocaine on his car it's still bizarre um i just tactically knowing what i know about how people are reacting down in statesboro i don't understand why they essentially left him out in the wind for this period of time. If you're emphatic and you believe your guy and the circumstances being so bizarre with this whole smear of cocaine nonsense, I don't understand why. And that's that's not even against the PD. We'll get to that in a second. I'm just talking about from a, from a logistics standpoint at Georgia Southern. He's your starting quarterback, right? Yeah, I get it. But I, I like I, and I don't love the way that they handled it either. But I, I kind of get why you don't demonstrably come out on Shy Wirtz's side because you have this separate other incident. Because in a sense, if you come out in 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 very demonstrative defense of Shy Wirtz, but then you leave the other kid, the defensive end, out to dry because you don't really know his situation, well, how does that look? I in that I'm respect less concerned I get about that because I do think I'll put it this way. You can name the defensive end because you went and looked it up. How many people in America under how many people in America are going to get that new cycle versus this one on shy words? I mean, but when you put them both together, like when you put them both together, that's a big deal. But that's just it, though. The reverberation of, the, of, of oh, there's a player culture problem at GSU or whatever. That doesn't echo as far as we think. Because of the circumstances of this, oh, he, and you got to remember when this breaks, we move so fast and we cycle so fast in the media that we, we we have to get our scarecrows up and our straw men's up straw men up immediately and then even when a story like this essentially the narrative flips on itself we don't really undo the damage that we've done so we're making jokes about him and oh you know this kid claimed it was uh, he he tried to claim it was bird shit when it was actually cocaine that was the big joke right you go across reddit or you twitter and you know that was the joke was this kid was was such a bad liar as a criminal that he tried to pass off cocaine as bird shit. Well, guess what? Nobody really expected the left turn of, oh, hey, that was actually bird shit. And you look at the dash cam, there's no way. Look, that is a tone. That is a, what, what you and I talked about this yesterday, a Scarface level amount of cocaine residue. To have yeah, had gonna... that, first off, to have had that much residue implies you had a mountain of cocaine in, in, in the short term, all right? Second, 
probably not going to be on the hood of your car. Yeah, and I mean, you know, not like either of us know what cocaine actually looks like. <clears throat> but yeah, it's it, it 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 you know, if I was a if I was around cocaine, I would be able to tell you that that is a laughable amount of like that is an impressive amount of cocaine if it were actually to have been cocaine i mean it's like a three foot smear like down the front of the hood and then obviously like across like near where the windshield wiper fluid thing is yeah um and so basically like the whole time he gets pulled over they test the thing they ask him what's going on he's like hey look Last night, he's like, it's literally bird poop. He says it multiple times. He says, it's bird poop. He says, I went to the gas station last night and used one of the little, you know, the wands that you clean your windshield off with. He was like, I tried to to clean it off. It's smeared. I don't know what to tell you. It's bird poop. It's bird poop. It's bird poop the whole time. You got to go through the wash, by the way. All this is avoided if he goes through that $5 wash, except it tears up the enamel on your car. Um... To me, the much bigger issue is this. Tremendously large. Um, so, yeah, I grew up a Georgia Southern fan. Um, my parents both went to school there. My dad went to school there to study criminal justice. My dad is a cop. I have one, two, three, four, five cops in my extended family. Histor- I mean, this is through history. Like, my grandfather was a cop. Um, and Georgia Southern turns out a lot of criminal justice majors, which kind of makes me think maybe they just want all this to be done. And they don't want to they don't want to as an organization or as an athletic department try and rain fire down on this this PD in South Carolina. That's a thought. It's just a thought. It's just a theory. Um, the bigger conversation and the point of bringing this up, even as a podcast topic, is this. Here's what you have. You have a police officer who how old do you think that how old do you think that arresting officer was? 20. He looked probably early 30s. Okay, I was going to say like 30s. I was going to say between 28 and 32. All right. Maybe. To me, he looked younger than that. I didn't think he was, and I, I'm, I'm honestly not trying to make a joke. I didn't think he was like your age. I would say he was probably a few years younger than you. And no gray in that beard. Um, the point is this. You have an arresting officer who I think starts the entire process. Ex- the entire, uh, what is the actual nomenclature? Basically, from the time he gets out of the car and interacts with Wirtz, he is upset and angry. Because yeah, he gets he out of the followed- car. Because he, he's followed words, okay? He gets out of the, the car reason why, off. So he, he's upset because he thinks this person has eluded him and not respected the fact that, hey, when you hit the lights, you got to pull over, right? On the other side, you have, and he says this in the video, right? You have a 22, I think, year old uh, black male who says, I think, multiple times in the video, you know what's going on. Uh, I was on the phone, explains to him what he was doing. I was talking to dispatch. The one thing I couldn't hear was, I don't know if it, dis, dispatch informed the, the officer, hey, he's on the phone with us right now. Yeah, I think so. Because that's, And that's a huge thing to check too. But so if, they if you don't watch they the didn't video. Know. I, they didn't don't, know when they got out of the car. If you don't watch the video, it goes on for a, a good bit before he pulls over because he's trying to get to a place that he feels is safe. That alone right there angers and frustrates the officer. The officer then arrests a guy who is possessing cocaine, but it's actually bird shit. The real conversation here has nothing to do with what's smeared on the hood. It's that you have an officer who's upset because I, I, this is my well-informed theory growing up in a police family that that cop was furious because Wirtz said, Hey, you know what's going on in the news? I needed to get to a safe place because what that cop is thinking is, well, what are you inherently accusing me of? On the same in the same breath, you have a guy 
who has now made it a policy in his life, I've got to get to a well-lit place before I interact with the police department. The fact we're not talking about that and we're doing all this dumb internet joke shit about, oh, cocaine, bird poop, whatever, that's the problem. That's the issue. Well, look, we're not talking about it because, first and foremost, uh, college football media is extremely white and I don't think understands how to deal with this situation in the proper nuance and doesn't want to take it on. I do because I care about it and I'm passionate about it, frankly. Um, with the, un- the Like, you can tell that it's it's this, the, 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 the level of benefit of the doubt here. Like, there is no benefit of the doubt. The cop gets out annoyed. He gets out pissed off. Shay were, because, like, this is, it, it is, it's so frustrating to me because, like, look, when, when white parents talk to white kids about traffic stops, it's about how to get out of the traffic stop without getting the ticket. When black parents talk to black kids, it's about getting out of the traffic stop with your life. Like, this is that serious. I am not making it a bigger deal than it is. You under, like, there, there, there are a lot of little things in it that just hit me so, so hard. Like, when the cop opens the door, Shywartz asks if he can take his seatbelt off. You know why he does that? Because he doesn't want the cop to think that he's pulling out a gun from under his seat. Like, that's the deal here. Like the cop gets out and, I, you know, I, I did name the cops earlier. I'm not going to attribute some of the quotes to the cops because I'm not sure which one is saying which. But like some of the quotes from the video, the cop says, you're pissing me off. The cop says, I don't uh, believe anything you're telling me. When the cops are informed that Shywertz was on the phone with dispatch, one of the cops says he thinks it matters if he calls, kind of sardonically, kind of sarcastically. One of the cops says, while Shywertz is being cuffed, one of the cops says, you're going to be no safer than you'll ever be with two policemen right behind you. That right there is the disconnect because those cops think Shywertz is in the safest position possible. Shywertz yes. thinks he is in the least safe position he could ever be in the United States of America. That's point blank period of fact and that's the problem it has nothing to do with bird poop and these cops like it's one of the cops says when they um when they test the the substance they kind of shave some of the bird shit off the front of the car and put it in the little field test kit and they say they literally say one in a it would be a one in a thousand case for one of these things to prove faulty when we know that these things can be false positive Anywhere from one in five to one in three. We've known that these things can give false positives for two decades. When the Mm -hmm. Department of Justice said in 2000, hey, there should be a label on here that says these things are unimpeachable. These things have tested positive for drugs when the actual substance has been deodorant, billiards, chalk, eucalyptus, breath mint, Dr. Bronner's soap, Jolly Rancher, Krispy Kreme donut glaze. You want me to keep going? Like, this is the situation that we're dealing with here. And, like, it, it, the, the whole, the tone of the entire thing uh, kind of escalates more when the cops obviously test positive or when, they, when the thing tests positive and the cops are now kind of going through the thing where they assume that Shywartz is a drug dealer. Like, they look through his trunk and they find, I guess, a nice cigar box and they kind of joke with themselves, like, oh, like, you know, uh, you know, where'd this expensive cigar box come from? And then one of the cops says, well, he's dealing dope. So kind of in like a joking way, um, you know, the, the, the entire tone comes from 
they think he is obviously not only not following the law, but like literally a drug dealer. So the two cops that I spoke to, one of which I am related to, pointed out that because of the length of the pursuit, pursuit being a, I'll put it in quotes, all right? They establish, and I think they even say it on the track, that he is potentially getting rid of evidence, hence the whole smear. Which yeah, again, they think he might have been like here's thrown my thing it out on the that. window. I, I feel like I feel like a drug enforcement officer would probably tell you that if, if you are ditching a bunch of dope, and you happen to have like an open brick of whatever, and you happen to throw it left-handed across the hood of your car, it's probably not going to look like that. However, that's not the point I was told. The point is because of the length of the pursuit, because of the the length of time between them hitting the lights and him actually pulling over, that it's probable cause that he was getting rid of something, some sort of evidence against him. Not saying right, not saying wrong. I know this, Richard. Uh, It's emblematic of a lot of things right now. And... My hope moving forward is that everybody can at least listen. Not agree even at this point, because I think this is such a open and festering wound in America. I'm not even, I'm so nihilistic, I don't even expect communication for a while. I just want people to listen. I just want the sharp, I want the sharpest end of both sides of this to listen. And then maybe from there we start to to clean out a wound like this well like the end like it's it's even like and i'm talking about when you talk about listening i'm talking about the cops listening like the cops are quite clearly take offense to what they think is an assertion by shy words about the the situation that he is in yeah. And 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 they take offense to it. And Shywartz is just trying to explain, like, hey, like he, you know, he's like my mom taught me, like, not to pull yeah. over on like a dark road, and like the the cops think he's like insulting them. Yes, like, yes, it's, and I it's, can tell you, the cops in my life, that that's the flashpoint, right yeah, there. Yeah, I, that I moment. get it, yeah. but at the end of the day policemen in this country are not above reproach, and a lot of the things in this country, the problems in this country stem from a lot of people thinking that police are above reproach or always should be given the benefit of the doubt because they're law enforcement. Um, I think a lot of people are scared of what may happen to society if society wholesale changes from giving law enforcement officers officers the benefit of the doubt. Um, but I know growing up, like, I don't even have a particularly strong relationship with my father, but when me and my dad would talk about when I start driving and when I get pulled over, it was a conversation of what do you do? Okay, well, you stop, you take the keys out, you throw the keys um, onto the dashboard, you put both hands onto the steering wheel, and you sit and you stare straight forward and you wait. And you're as insanely respectful as humanly possible. I understand that there's a lot of people whose lives have not been saved by that, but you try to be as precautious as possible. And it's, 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 people of color do not think that policemen are above reproach. A lot of white people do. And that disconnect, that disconnect is one of the biggest problems with when you try to discuss this issue. And when cops kind of get, when cops kind of get insulted by that, like I understand, but at the end of the day, 
when I make a mistake, there is a missed word in an article or a headline comes out wrong. When a cop makes a mistake, somebody can die. Somebody can go to prison uh, unjustly for way too long. Like the stakes are way higher for a policeman's mistake. So yeah, you better be on your P's and Q's at all points in time because something like this, this kid, this could have ruined this young man's career and the rest of his life. And I think just from a, you know, I don't know the kid, but I would imagine that this now colors every single interaction he's ever going to have with law enforcement for probably mm-hmm. the rest of his life. It's going to change how he talks about law enforcement with his friends, with a significant other, with his children in the future, if he has any. Like, this is a big deal. This is not some some small fly-by-night mistake. You jailed this kid because you thought he had cocaine in a false positive test that is not you know, that's not faulty one in a thousand times that can be faulty anywhere from one fifth to one third. Like this is what we're talking about here. Okay. Um, while this podcast is both popular and effective, it is probably not going to fix any of this. Call it a hunch. Um, however, we'll I don't talk think about- that's, 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 that's nihilistic though. We we can, and we should talk about this in these terms because you're the son of a cop and I'm a young black man. Like this is the kind of conversation that should be happening on these terms. Well, if you'd let me finish, I was going to say we should talk about it. I am not naive enough to think that we can change a larger sentiment, but one thing that we can do is not shy away from the conversation, nor addressing either side of it, nor sticking to sports. Considering I opened this segment with White Claw, I don't think that anyone's ever going to say that we ever stuck to sports. So maybe maybe we don't even have to deal with the criticism that's levied at ESPN because we didn't stick to sports to begin with. Yeah, sticking to sports um, is lame. All right. Richard, hopefully that works. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, man, you know what I really hope as we close this out? I really hope that somebody of a strong opinion either way on this listen to the whole thing. That's all I hope. That's really it. I think they did. And I We're think you have an elevated I think you have an elevated discussion about stuff. Um I think you're, you know, I'm not afraid to kind of say some of this stuff and yeah, I hope it made um some people listening to this mad, but I hope they listen to the whole thing because been pulled over by the police for uh, for a busted taillight and been made to come out the car and put my hands on a cop car's hood while he ran my license and while he ran my plates. Like, this is a this is a thing where it elicits fear in a very large subset of the United States of America. And people don't get it because people don't want to get it. And people don't try to listen in to other people's side of the equation. Um because our side of the equation is right. Listen to people of color when they tell you that they're scared about these things because we're right, because it matters. Richard Johnson, I'll see you next week.